Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today we welcome back our first two-time guest, the one and only Susan Hackett, for another enjoyable discussion about life, law, and business. For those of you who don't know her, and I can't imagine there are many of you, Susan is the CEO of Legal Executive Leadership, LLC. Prior to that, she was Vice President and General Counsel of the Association of Corporate Counsel for more than 20 years. While at the ACC, she presided over the creation of the Value Challenge, designed to recognize the in-house teams and outside counsel for driving value in legal spending. Today, Susan is part of a number of entrepreneurial pursuits focused on the improvement of the legal profession. We had a fascinating discussion around her take on the evolving role of the general counsel and in-house legal departments, drawing on her own experience and her work recently on programming for in-house focus. Susan talks about the ramifications of a different mindset by the GC and what that means for service providers. As always, I had a wonderful time catching up to Susan, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. I'm here today with one of my favorite people, Susan Hackett, who joins us for a record second time on Pioneers and Pathfinders. Susan, thank you so much for making time. It's it's great to see you. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. I, I hope second time's the charm. <laughs> well, I was asked to pick my favorite guest, and I love all our guests, so it was hard to pick, but here we are. Well, that's an honor. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so when we talked a year ago, everybody was locked down. Yeah. And you were starting in-house focus. Yep. So bring us up to speed what the last year has been in terms of you've changed the name for in-house focus a little bit. Yeah. Well, and and it's, I want to be sure I'm clear. In-house focus is the company that is owned and was founded by a guy named Andrew Dick, who has been doing work in the video recording and legal education area for a number of law firms and groups for some years. So when the pandemic hit, and suddenly video became very much more a part of our lives within legal. He was really looking at how he could take what had been a very successful business and move it to the next level based on what was happening in the industry and how people in remote work were finding different ways to interact and different ways to get the kinds of educational content, for instance, that they might have otherwise gone to conventions for or been to local bar meetings or networking events to participate in. And so he started this project that we did last year when we when we last spoke for in-house focus that was called Leaders of Legal and asked me to help develop the content and the lineup of general counsel who would speak. And each episode was around a specific topic featuring three general counsel from major companies who were involved in plot leadership a lot around those topics and asked them to just converse pretty collegially, very casually, but on a leadership level about what they were doing. So it was distinguishing because it wasn't about, you know, the the law and the reg and the the standard CLE type of program. It was more about perspective and executive uh, leadership and changing times and what you know, people were doing in order to move their organizations forward from their legal teams. And the the response was 
outstanding. It was, I don't want to say it was unanticipated because of course we were hoping it would be terrific, but we had hundreds of people. And a couple of times, I think we had an excess of a thousand people for the events when they were broadcast. And now they're also available in archive. And it gave Andrew not only the inspiration, but the confidence to take this to the next level. So coming probably in mid-May of this year, 2022, he'll be launching something called Luminate Plus. And that will be the new platform on which not only the past series that I did for the last year, but the newly you know, revised series, which we're now calling the GC Agenda, and another series that I'm putting together, which is about lawyers moving beyond legal that we're calling GC's Rising, where we're talking to former CLOs who've now become CEO or president or CFO or CAO or whatever, and talking with them about their perspectives and how they moved their careers beyond legal by leveraging what they knew as lawyers and their experience and perspective as lawyers to become great clients, if you will, on the other side of the desk. And, you know, so it'll be a mixture of career pathing conversations for those who are interested in that kind of career path in law, moving to the next place, the next act, if you will. But there'll also be, I hope, a good dose of here are some thoughts from the other side. Now that I'm looking back at my legal career as a person who is looking for legal service and a relationship with the lawyers in my organization, what are the things that I'm thinking about or the lessons learned that I might be able to share that would help current practicing lawyers think about how to serve their clients better? Oh, that sounds fabulous. What a a great idea. Yeah. And then there'll be legal ethics too. So we'll get the ethics one in later. And you know how I love the advocacy and ethics type stuff because the changing regulations and everything that's going on in practice and the tensions that it creates between rules that were formed back when, you know, lawyers were only using paper and pencil and sitting in offices and in a manner that was a very different kind of practice environment than it will be in a digital life in the future. So we'll, we'll talk about how to navigate all of those kinds of issues as well on an ethics show, hopefully as well. But there are about 20, 25 hosts that will be up there in the first year. I think we're going to launch with about 15. So 15 different series. And we've got people talking about legal tech. People you know very well. Jay is going to be, Jay Oom is going to have a series on there. Well, of course she is. Yeah. We've got a whole bunch of great hosts. Casey Flaherty is going to have a series. Nikki Shaver is going to be on. Frankly, it's like the best of your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> oh, sure. Steal, steal, steal for my people. That's it's right. All coming to- <laughs> yeah. It was just, I, you know, Andrew said, what, what, who should we look to? And I thought, well, I'm, I, why should I just crib from Steve? You know, I mean, Pioneers <laughs> and Pathfinders has already done it all. That's why they needed that. <laughs> There's a lot of overlap, but there are some terrific people who will be guests and, Like I said, the neat thing about this is that the conversation is at a level that I think is of particular pertinence to people who are looking to the future. That's great. And who are thinking about how legal practice will be relevant in the future rather than simply how do you get through today's inbox and put it into your outbox. Well, that's fabulous. I'm I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. So what what lessons have you learned from the last year in terms of the forum that you've been running, sort of what themes have come up? Well, you know, the general counsel role, if you will, is something that I think has been evolving, obviously, for for decades, but has really accelerated the pace of change and the kinds of roles and opportunities in the last 30 years, maybe or so, is just the pace has been exponential. So 
I saw a lot of what I had been observing over the last 35 years or so of practice in all of these conversations, but it was starting to come to a finer point. It was starting to become more of a consensus rather than an outliers kind of a position. When I first started seeing general counsel moving into different kinds of roles and responsibilities or looking at what they did and why they did it and how they served their clients differently, they were kind of unicorn folks. I mean, there weren't that many people out there talking about it. The conversation seemed a little strange to those who were listening in. So the first thing I'd say is that this has now become the norm to discuss these kinds of leadership issues and to look at general counsel as people who are influencers, as well as people who provide great legal leadership within their organization. And they're influencing not only their own teams and their own companies, but how it is that the profession performs its work as they get more and more involved and in some cases more and more progressive and aggressive in how they look to what their firms are offering and the kinds of things they're doing to drive services in the marketplace beyond law firms in the ALSP or alternative legal service provider market and how they're looking at what they're thinking about in terms of litigation strategy, how they're looking at external policy and how they're creating policy, not just reacting to it or interpreting it. But you look at the companies who are in the innovation sphere, whatever, whether it's tech or media or communications or finance or fintech or whatever, these GCs and their teams are actually developing and writing policy. They're not just reactively responding to what it is that comes out because the environment is changing so quickly in which all these companies work. They're sometimes the best translators and the best ambassadors of what it is that they're doing. So you heard throughout these series, general counsel talking about how, well, there wasn't really a law for what we wanted to do. So it was very difficult for us to assess the risk or advise the client. So we made a proposal. I, you know, this is this is a fascinating new way to be thinking about driving the legal department is, you know, actually development of policy as well as practice. So that's been a trend. I want to spend some time drilling into that and how it manifests itself. But let me back up a second because uh, you've been on the forefront of change in the legal profession for a long time. You and I both have. And the pace has picked up, I think, recently, but it's been a long slog from the value challenge to now is not gone as quickly as I think either you or I would have guessed. You talk about this shifting mindset and this different approach from historically legal departments, even the most sophisticated legal departments, model themselves as in-house law firms, essentially. Yeah. Do you think that model and that mindset has been a barrier or a break on change? Because if I'm running an in-house law firm, how much change am I truly expecting from my outside law firm? Well, and and how much are you thinking about changing your role to your client's needs as opposed to conforming to what it is that lawyers have always done, which I'm not pronouncing as bad. I'm simply saying it was always from the lawyer's perspective as opposed to being something that was based on the client's experience and the client's expectations. No, I think I think you're right. To start where, where you started, when we started looking at this stuff back in the, what, the mid-2000s, late-2000s. I'll just say a little bit of time ago. Let's not, yeah, let's not put a I date know, on it. <laughs> we, can, we can count the hairs that are now gray for each one of those years. Oh, sure, um, you can. Many times, I can. Yeah. 
<laughs> there you go. Well, well, we'll get into that later. I think I know each one by name now. <laughs> They're all precious to me. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> but, you know, when we first started working on these kinds of things, I think there was a perception that if we simply explained what the, the new concepts were, that there were better business practices, that there were things that lawyers could do differently that would not only improve their efficiency, but increase their value to their clients. And whether they were in-house or outside, this would certainly make sense for them to consider and, you know, process and project management. And of course, all these things made sense. And then, you know, we sat back and said, so, so go ahead and adopt, you know, make yourselves at home, just jive right in. And most people just looked at us and went, mm, nah. Right. And it's not so much because they didn't understand any of it. It's because they were doing quite nicely, thank you, in an environment that was the environment they knew. It was the environment that had profited them mightily. It was the environment that they were trained in and that they felt very competent in delivering. And even the financial downturn of the late 2000s didn't really set that many people off their norm. It may have brought some people to the conversation as people were worried that there wasn't going to be as much money to go around and they'd have to be more distinguishing in their service to their clients what they didn't want to get their budget cut in their law department or if they were a law firm and they wanted to keep their client and stay on that you know, preferred portfolio of providers. But I think that it wasn't really until you started to see competition coming into the marketplace from providers that weren't law firms. And, you know, it's easy to talk about it as the ALSP market as if it's the alternative to service providers, but it was really a mixture of information technology and technology uh, services of different kinds of automation options, the kinds of, of major players like the big four or frankly, the big eight that had managed portfolio service models that were starting in other jurisdictions to offer more in the way of legal services. And we're starting to explore what they might offer in the legal market in the United States without running foul of regulation. When you looked at the kinds of companies that were starting to develop very sophisticated consulting services, which were really, you know, legal services by another name. I will consult with you on your compliance programs. I can consult with you on your portfolio for IP. I can, you know, all the things that lawyers have traditionally provided to clients. And I think at that point, it was the first time when lawyers started to sit up and say, well, it's no longer just an issue of my comfort. It's an issue of my relevance. If I don't start moving down this path, there will be other people who will come in and eat my lunch. And in some cases, especially with things like the big four, there were well-established and respected relationships in most companies for those kinds of organizations. So I really think that the impetus that got more people moving wasn't just the logic. It wasn't just the reality that your service model is one from the 1950s and is not well positioned to take you into the future. It was that there are now other people who have very clearly demonstrated they can do it better, faster, and cheaper. And your clients are increasingly interested in hearing more about them, whether the client is the law department or whether it's directly coming from the C-suite where they're looking for solutions to business problems that can be provided by all kinds of folks in the marketplace. And so, you know, I think that we were wrong to think it was just going to happen immediately. But I also think we were wrong not to realize that there would have to be a financial incentive in addition to that rational incentive to want to improve because there are simply better ways to get it done. And we underanticipated, if you will, how difficult it would be to exert behavior change without, you know, the threat of the noose, if you will. 
Yes, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. But it, it strikes me from what you're you're talking about that it's not just about service delivery modalities anymore. It's the progressive GCs you're talking about are rethinking what their services are right. to their clients. And if you rethink what your services are, that leads you to rethink what services you need delivered to your organization from a raft of providers. Am I hearing you right? I think you are. And I think there will be, especially for the next five years or so, two distinct paths that people will take. One will be they will see general counsel looking for that distinguishing role internally, and they will say, ah, therefore I can be the outside law firm that provides those law firm-like services that previously you were organizing your department to deliver internally. You know, you were organizing by practice group or you were organizing just like, you know, you had in a firm and performing work the same way you had when you were in a firm. And so they would say to themselves, gee, the general counsel and his or her team are now moving forward to look at ways that they can add value differently for the client. So they will need us as a firm to provide those traditional firm kinds of services. And the second path will be the law firms and legal service providers who will see general counsel starting to redefine their role. And they'll say, ah, how can I partner in doing that? How can I collaborate with the department and moving with them to create the kinds of solutions that they want to provide so I can be an extension of the department, not differentiated from the department, but an extension working in exactly the same way, hand in hand. Obviously, I think there'll be room in the market for both kinds of service models. But one of the things that I really like about the latter one is the idea that you start reinventing what it is that's being offered both in terms of the legal kinds of services, as well as in the future of what I think lawyers will do, which is not so, I think a lot of the stuff that's been the traditional legal service eventually will become increasingly likely to be augmented by automation or offshored or work sourced to different kinds of talent pools who are far less expensive than lawyers in the performance of that work. And so what lawyers will continue to do is break through into new areas, you know, just as you saw in the last couple of years that privacy became a huge issue or ESG has become a huge issue. And now firms and clients are moving to develop the kinds of services that clients need them to perform in order to help them excel in those areas. They'll be looking at what's next, not at what has been done for the last 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And you've consistently seen over the years, new risks appear on the corporate stage that have to be managed. But it sounds to me like you're talking about a more fundamental rethinking of what the role of the lawyer is in-house. And that leads me to think of a couple of questions to ask you. One, for those progressive GCs that are rethinking that role, not just about what the next risk is and how do I get ahead of this particular kind of litigation, because that can be solved the old fashioned way. But how do I change the value proposition that I and my department is delivering to the organization? What barriers are they encountering from their own internal clients? Because people see lawyers as lawyers. And so if you're going to offer services, there has to be somebody on the other side willing to accept those services and embrace them. Are you seeing a challenge there? There is, because I think that most lawyers, whether they were in law firms or legal departments, essentially grew up in and have performed services that I would think of as responsive or remedial. A problem has been identified, an issue has come up, a client has called to ask a question, and the lawyer responds. 
And a lot of what you're seeing in the new universe of general counseling is a recognition that, well, that will never go away, nor should it, because that's a a fundamental role for the legal team and the compliance team when they're working in tandem with each other to be able to respond to. The next role is how is it that lawyers will be part of advancing the business as part of the strategy and vision and operations of the business in its daily life, not waiting for something to arise. But when the company is thinking about globalization, they're at the table talking about which markets you're going into, helping to develop the advanced team that will be going in to assess what the realities of doing business in that market might be, looking at where the risks are, looking at how the cost will work, a much more progressive rather than reactive kind of of service model. So it will vary greatly depending on what industry the company is in and how progressive the company is in looking to advance what they're doing or change what they're doing over time. But there are fewer and fewer businesses that are interested in standing still and just holding the niche that they've always had. Most are focused quite firmly on how will I take it to the next level? How will I look at ways to safeguard the the future of what we do? How will we explore new markets or new ideas or whatever? And if their lawyers aren't part of that progressive conversation, they're really missing not only the opportunity to be valuable to their clients, but their clients are missing the opportunity to think more strategically about how they can succeed so that they don't you know, fall into a hole on the way or step on a landmine on the way or miss the kinds of judgment and perspective and experience that lawyers can bring to conversations especially as lawyers develop more business skills and more executive skills and start to see how businesses run and move their their teams in a similar fashion, I think you're going to see them able to contribute at that level, at the corporate level, at a whole different level of play than they have been at before when they were burdened with so much work that was coming in and it was just all responding to whatever was most urgent today and never getting to the business priorities because they were always working, you know, on on what it was that was the traditionally defined legal stuff. So a lot of departments are looking at how to either eliminate that or automate it or move it to another group to provide that service and then to be able to spend more of their time focusing on those higher priority workloads for their company that actually advance the business forward. And that's where you get into this stuff like the policy development and the external relationships, you know, where lawyers were traditionally never seen at a press conference or or to be the spokesperson for the organization in front of a committee or a, a regulatory group, because the lawyer was always the chief of no comment, right? You know, they were they were not the people who spoke on behalf of the client. And now they're regularly in the role of being the lead spokesperson for the organization and developing their reputational brand. So yeah, fill that out a little bit more, because I think people and I want to come back to the skills necessary to do this because you're talking about a different skill set, I think. But some people listening to this may go back, well, we've been talking about lawyers partnering with the business for years, and this is just a different manifestation of it. But I think you're talking about something more nuanced and, and more layered than what we've traditionally talked about. I think it's true. I think, you know, it, it certainly has been a change in mindset for the lawyers who are involved in looking at how they define their roles and where they feel they can 
add value and they should attune themselves to what it is that they could deliver. But it's complemented by clients, the folks who are in the C-suite, the customers for legal service, if you will, or, you know, frankly, as most legal departments will call them, their business partners or their business associates, having a much broader and more robust relationship with their lawyers than simply coming to them when there's a problem. I think lawyers, as they started to talk about partnering with the business and started to try to, for instance, attend more strategy meetings or be a part of conversations as they were happening as teams were developing product or service or as the C-suite was looking at the large issues that were going to be facing the company, they were all talking about how we can be more involved in those discussions early on and be invited to those kinds of conversations. Well, now that they're invited, those that have done well and contributing value to those conversations are now going to be called upon again. And so, you know, where where previously you heard law departments five, 10 years ago talking about demand management, you know, I've got so many clients asking for so many things that we produce and we just don't have time to get to all of it. And how do we manage the demand of our client by creating systems like contract systems so that they can do their own or or compliance programs that allow them to take education, but then manage their own compliance initiatives because we're just overloaded with all of these requests for help. Now you're seeing more and more departments freed of some of that and able to say, we're going to sit in with you, you know, dear, dear business partners on the conversations where you're talking about what's next and be able to add perspective and be able to add value to those kinds of conversations. So I'm incited by what I see when they're doing that because a lawyer's real value isn't, you know, performing the rote rituals of filling in the forms and doing the documentation and following the process. I mean, sure, they can do that and they do it well in many cases, but their their higher value is judgment and perspective and experience and bringing, for instance, things like the reputational issues or the risk issues or brand management conversations or how it is that this will have an impact beyond simply the production of the the widget within the the organization. So what they're bringing is really valued when it starts to come out and shine. In the last few years, you've started to see a lot of CLOs who are able to deliver that in the C-suite. And so their portfolio and the teams that support them, their portfolio is rapidly changing away from that rote work that is important to do. But since it is routine, it can either be done by other people or it can be outsourced or it can be automated. There are lots of ways to get that work done increasingly without that much lawyer time and attention. Oversight, yes, but not making that the main occupation. And then lawyers have to figure out how they're going to provide that higher value. And, you know, so it starts at the general counsel, but the real challenge will be how does that trickle into the team over time too? Yeah. And the other question that sort of leaps to my mind is these are different skill sets. Some of them are legal skill sets, understanding problem, problem solving, looking at risks. We're, we're trained to do that, but it hasn't been typical for lawyers, whether they be CLLs or members of the team, to be part of a solution designing phase where it's recognizing the problem, but also finding business solutions. How do lawyers learn those skills? Because I think they can be learned. Yeah, I think some of it comes from that very process of spending more time in the client's meetings with the clients. Some of it just rubs off. I mean, when you start to feel far more comfortable understanding the financials of the organization, I mean, most senior level lawyers, frankly, most everybody in-house knows how to read the basic financials, but that doesn't mean that they understand the financial life cycle or that they really get 
how it is that the company over the course of quarters does different kinds of things at different times. You know, you start to get a sense of how it is that the salespeople and the other folks who are driving revenue in different ways bring revenue in and how they're supported and how they're not. You get in a sense for where the expense functions are. Just that increasing awareness of how all of the aspects of business that have to do with cost, which is always one of the major fundamentals in any company, especially for the legal department to be aware of what will be the cost of that in terms of reputation or brand, as well as in potential problems it could create. Or you start to see people who are leading teams in different ways and motivating them in different ways. And so they start to understand how they themselves can be better contributors when they aren't walking into a room and saying things in a lawyerly manner, but in a manner which is designed to help empower a client to figure out how to take the next steps and to convey that you wish to partner with them and and doing that work. A lot of those things can happen simply by being attuned to the audience and using these opportunities to get further involved in the business, to actually learn how the business works, get its DNA into your system. I do know that when we first started having these conversations, you know, 20 years ago, even you saw more lawyers doing things like taking an executive education class and doing formal educational things to up their skill set or to improve the variety of tools they have in their toolkit. And I don't speak against those. Indeed, I was a big fan of them and I still am because for a lot of lawyers, there is a certain level of comfort in taking those kinds of classes and starting to explore that thinking in a place where they don't have to display their ignorance in front of a client, for instance. They can, they can learn it as, as a student would. But I don't think that most of the things that are really valuable for lawyers in-house in this environment can be taught in those classes because they tend to come from the school of hard knocks, you know, where you've been in the, the trench with someone who's trying to figure something out. And, you know, you're looking at five or six different alternatives and you experiment with things and some things fail and you have to go through a, a feedback. So these are these are not things that most lawyers in practice have a lot of experience with. We're not used to dealing with failure, are we? we we're not trained. To... No, we're not a very resilient breed, are we? No, we're not. You know, it seems like we avoid risk. We like to feel uber competent in whatever we're doing. So things that we don't feel uber competent in, we tend to avoid or minimize. And that lack of curiosity, as well as that lack of willingness to say, hey, that didn't work. Let's figure out what went wrong and try it again a different way, as opposed to saying, well, that didn't work. So we must, you know, turn around and go back and not do that ever again. And I I think there's a, a real changing environment for lawyers who are getting further involved with business people to understand that this is part of the natural cycle of business to be part of the experiment, if you will, and not always the smartest person in the room. To be the person who says, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I understand why you're you're asking that. And sometimes asking that question is the, the best way to not only learn what it is the client's doing, but to express your concern about what the client's doing. Because if they can't articulate it either, then maybe there is a problem. You know, when, 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 when someone's doing something. So this, this kind of different attitude about what it means to be a counselor doesn't always mean I have the answer. I'm walking into the room because I have the answer. It means instead I'm part of a team and I bring a specific set of experiences and skills 
in either, you know, the analytics of this from a legal perspective or a compliance perspective, or in the ability to think strategically or to look at repercussions beyond what we're talking about, or to be able to offer perspective. But that's not the same thing as going into the room and saying, you know, I'm an expert in this area of law. You've called this meeting. I'm going to deliver my expertise. And that's all I do. So joining these teams has been a real experiential process of learning those executive skill sets. I don't know that, you know, there's a better way to learn most of them except to get yourself involved. And I think especially for more junior people in legal departments, it's one of the reasons why they are very interested in coming in-house because they actually get a chance to work arm in arm with people in the company. It's that exposure to the client, because unlike in a in a law firm environment, for instance, where you may be more junior and your exposure to actually working with the clients will be limited, not only in terms of, you know, taking instruction and bringing clients in, but literally the day to day stuff. I mean, the way I've I've always seen outside practice and you inform me because you have a far better, you know, beat on this, Steve. But a lot of, you know, junior lawyers are taught from day one for the first several years. The person you're working for is really your partner who you engage with. And there may be other people you're working with on your team, but it's the lawyers in the law firm who you interact with all day. And when you get into the environment in the law department, you're working directly with the clients, figuring this stuff out with them on the the business side. So, you know, the best way to learn this stuff is to go in-house. I know that sounds obvious, but, <laughs> you know, it is, it's really where you get that kind of opportunity to, to develop that kind of elbow grease for working on, on matters from a client's perspective and, and actually, you know, figuring out how that sausage is made. Do you see, Susan, this evolving mindset reflecting itself in different structures of legal departments, because historically they've been structured like law firms. They're either around practice line or by company. And the ultimate goal being to staff up each one of those departments so you could be, you know, sufficient to to perform all services. And right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there is some of that. I mean, remember, and I think we talked a little bit about this in the, our, our previous conversation. There's this perception out there that all law departments are very large, and that's just demographically not true. There are very large legal departments for a number of very large corporations who are in more highly regulated or highly litigious industries. And there's lots for those people to do. And so you can see departments of, you know, over a thousand people or several hundred people at some of those very high profile departments. But the vast majority of companies, including the vast majority of companies with a legal team, have a very small legal department. So by definition, while they think of themselves as performing services like they performed when they were in law firms, when they first come into a smaller department environment, you soon realize that if you're a a solo general counsel, which is the largest segment of law departments in, you know, in terms of, of, of the composition of the department or in a department of three, four, five, six, seven people, you're by definition in the business of managing legal services provided by others or compliance services that are delivered by others or other kinds of services that you've outsourced because you just don't have the internal capacity, nor obviously is it the client's preference that you staff up a huge headcount inside the company to become that in-house law firm. The preference of a company that's got a solo GC is that I want you to be a great manager of what it is that needs to be done. I want you to set direction. I want you to supervise the people who you are outsourcing work to or even work that you are right sourcing within the company. Because a lot of what solo GCs do is they help people within the company manage their own legal needs. 
more effectively rather than being able to elevate them to the legal department for them to handle because they just don't have any more hands, right? So it really depends on that department size. And and I got to tell you, the people who've been far more creative in my experience and more importantly, far more flexible and nimble in being able to adopt different ways to work are in smaller departments because they have to figure out a different way of doing this work where the larger law department can say, well, hire five more lawyers and we'll handle that work, you know, by bringing that in and, and having those lawyers do the lawyering. You know, the folks in smaller departments are spreading themselves over the issues a lot more thinly, but more importantly, by partnering with people inside the company and outsource providers for that extension of the law department kind of mentality that I mentioned earlier, because no one's ever going to approve the headcount tripling every year for that company. It may not be appropriate to the scale of that company's needs and their ability to pay for it. It also, even in larger companies with smaller law departments, may simply be, from their perspective, not a great idea to staff up legal because they think they are leaner, even when prices are high for hiring outside services. They think they are leaner when they buy just what they need just in time, rather than bringing on a large team, which by definition often is in the business of bringing that much more work into the department because they, in some ways, they almost generate it by being there. Not saying they make legal problems, but suddenly if you know there's someone there who does this kind of work, more and more work comes in, you know, and so hence that adage that I had brought up, I think before I often quote it to other people is, you know, when you're trying to figure out how to get the work done and you're looking at hiring another lawyer or you're looking at hiring, for instance, someone who's a legal ops expert, if you hire the legal ops expert, you multiply the work that every one of your lawyers can get done. If you hire another lawyer, you brought yourself some more legal work, <laughs> you know, and, and and usually people's workloads don't decrease because another lawyer has been added, even if the idea was, oh, great, you know, Bob can come in and he'll he'll handle, you know, all of these cases we aren't able to get to. Inevitably, Bob brings his own workload in when he comes and people realize that he's there to do the work and no one else's workload improves. Right. Well, Susan, we've run out of time. Again. Again. <laughs> Thank you so much for helping us kick off year two of Pioneers and Pathfinders. Well, there are just so many things to talk about this year. I can't wait to see where you're going to go and who you're going to talk to. Yeah. and it, So that I, I can invite them all to be on the series, right? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get them, we'll get them uh, trained up for you. That's It'll right. Be great. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to your series and following that. It sounds, it sounds fabulous. I think it'll be a lot of fun, and I, I I hope that people will check it out at Luminate Plus in order to see where we're where we're where we're going with all of these great hosts and series. It should be up with the new platform for the new season of stuff coming out probably mid May or so. But you know you can still catch all the ones from last year if you go to inhousefocus.com as well. And we'll put a link in the show notes. Sounds great. The great Susan Hackett. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steve. It's always a pleasure to not only talk with you, but even though the audience can't to see you. It's good to see you too. (laughs) Take care. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.